Hello, and welcome to the Redemption Tempe podcast from Redemption Church, Tempe, Arizona, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. On this podcast, we cover a range of topics, including True Story Project, the gospel, and culture at large, and the occasional lesson from basketball and gangster rap. You can find more at our website, tempe.redemptionaz.com. Enjoy. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Redemption Tempe podcast, where we talk mostly about the True Story Project, uh, our wonderful project of reading the whole Bible as a whole church for the whole year. Um, we believe that the Bible is the true story of the whole world, and so we love to be immersed in it and really seeing God's story unfold as we read it together. We are now in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, it is October here, the end of October. We have jumped into the book of Deuteronomy after reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and now here at the final book of the first five, the Torah or the Pentateuch, um, Deuteronomy. And I have with me, uh, uh, I'm so excited to have with me Mark Blanville um, of Vancouver, Canada. Mark, you're a pastor and you're a professor. Uh, would, you, would you just give us a quick intro on, on who you are? Yeah, cool. Thanks for chatting, Ben. Uh, thanks for to, to speak um, into your church again. And uh, yeah, so I'm here in Vancouver. Uh, true to form, Vancouver is cloudy. Uh, we feel like for three months of the year that you're um, living, walking inside a swimming pool. It's grey. It's miserable. And um, seasonal affective disorder is a big deal down here, Ben. Uh, half of Vancouver has depression in a month's time because it's so so grey. But um, uh, it makes me crave Phoenix. And I'm married uh, to Erin, uh, and uh, we have Marla and Lewin, six and three. So we're busy bees. It's a busy phase of life. And I, uh, I'm a teaching faculty at the Missional Training Center down there in Phoenix. And uh, so it's my joy to be part of the team that, that trains pastors uh, in Phoenix um, with Michael Goheen and uh, this is something that I cherish, and I pastor here in Vancouver, and I'm an Aussie. That's that's where I'm from, so I'm from the sun. Uh, I grew up wrestling crocodiles and, and crushing snakes with my bare hands. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, um, we are so glad to have you again, Mark. You just spoke down here at our first Wednesday event, um, and, and would you would you just give us like a, like a one-minute recap of sort of what, what you took us through at first Wednesday? That was October, I believe it was October 5th. Right, that's right. Yeah, we had a, an evening um, discussing refugee issues. Um, World uh, Relief uh, was is is starting um, a, a a very very important settlement agency uh, for refugees uh, in Phoenix, and so um, as a as a way of kickstarting that, Matt Sorens and I um, shared on a on a first Wednesday, and we we spoke about the radical welcome of God in Christ for vulnerable people, for displaced people. Um, we shared stories, we, we shared scripture uh, as a way of um, just renewing ourselves um, and the Phoenix community re- re- renewing yourselves, re- ready to offer this welcome, this hospitality, this kinship with displaced people. Yeah, yes, that was a Friday right. night. That's, it, was, it was so good. Sorry, it was called Seeking Refuge. That was the one in, in uh, September, not October. I was, I was wrong about that, yes. Um, and it was, it was great to have you and just hear from you. In that, in that topic, we get to dive into talking about Deuteronomy because you are a, uh, you're a professor in that and you have a degree in Old Testament. Is that right? You're, you've studied that? That's right. I did my PhD on the book of Deuteronomy, actually. 
All right. Well, you're the right man to talk to then. Um, let's jump into it. Let's talk about Deuteronomy. We, like I said, we're on the True Story Project right now. Um, we have just entered the book of Deuteronomy, and um, it's been, I think, really amazing for our people to be walking through this whole story together of, of the Pentateuch starting at creation and moving into the Exodus. And now here we are at this fifth book, and sort of a recap in some ways. Moses goes back. He, he expands on some things that have happened, some events that have happened, almost a commentary in a sense, it seems like. Uh, I would love just hear a little bit of of your thoughts kind of give us a preface on deuteronomy uh, first question here how would you describe deuteronomy in one sentence yeah i think that deuteronomy is it's asking the question what does it mean to be the people of god and the people of god is we have to understand that the ancient context was a kinship context um it, it was a, where we that, that we define our relationships we think of our relationships in terms of kinship, whether it's our household or the extended household or the clan or the tribe or the, the nation. So it's, it's really asking, what does it mean to be the family of Yahweh? What does that mean? Um, what does it look like? How's it going to shape us? Uh, what does it mean for our self-identity? What does that mean to our, for our relationship with vulnerable people? And what we learn in the book of Deuteronomy is that to be the family of Yahweh, it changes everything and it shapes our society. Uh, as a family of Yahweh in very distinctive and beautiful ways. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, within that, then, there's a question of what, why do we need this? If, this? if it's sort of a summary, if it's sort of something that many of the events have already happened and been recorded in Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers, Moses is going back and really speaking to them. Um, it seems he, he starts right here in, in Deuteronomy 1 with, the, with God's people being rescued from Egypt are at the borderland. Of really of Canaan of the promised land and then he turns them back and sends them back out and what is it that that's important that's significant about Deuteronomy as, as a summary what is Moses doing here um, sure right so the book of Exodus is that first giving of the law at Mount Sinai isn't it it's about two and a half months out of Egypt and God brings this nation of ex-slaves um, who still have the wounds on their back from the Egyptian whip to Mount Sinai to receive his law and his law is shaping uh, God's family, if you like, as a contrast community um, to live in a way that's completely different from Egypt, to live in a way uh, that's, that's distant and other from Pharaoh's oppression in a way that everyone can thrive, especially the vulnerable. And here Israel receives the law at Sinai recorded in the book of Exodus. And then there is this uh, period of, of wilderness wanderings where, where, the, where the question question of trust and question of allegiance is sorted through and now in the book of Deuteronomy we're on the brink of the land where in in the land of Moab on the other on the Moab side at the eastern side of Jordan River and we're ready to cross we're on the brink of of entering the land we sort of already have entered into it and here as Israel the second generation of Israelites because the first generation died in the wilderness uh, you remember the golden calf episode and and there, there is this second reading of the law, the second giving of the law, where Moses, just before his death on Mount Nebo, he brings the people to a point of decision. And that's what's critical about the book of Deuteronomy. That as if God's people enter the land, the law is reiterated, it's retold, similarly and differently, for, for this new context of beginning our life as God's family in the land. And we're brought to a point of decision. We're invited to choose life. And to choose life means to, to say no to the kind of lives that, that, that Pharaoh 
guided his people into, this, this oppression of Egypt. And to say yes, to say no to the false gods, and to say yes to the one true God, and the beautiful life of self-giving and of flourishing that God is shaping his people to live into. And really, what, what, what's going on here at this point of decision, it's God is inviting his people on the, on the brink, of, on the, brink of, of the Jordan River, on the brink of the Promised Land, he's saying, you're invited to, to, to be a renewed humanity, to be my family, and to live in a way that humanity was always supposed to live like. I mean, you, you, you remember, of course, what happens in Genesis chapter 3 and 4. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall, and, and humankind re rebel against God. And everything goes haywire. Genesis chapter 4, the very next chapter, is fratricide. Brother kills brother. Cain kills Abel. And human relationships go to pot. And so when God calls Israel, he's, he's renewing humanity by starting with one particular people. And he's saying, you're going to be my family. You're going to be my people. And you're going to live as kindred together. And you're going to live the way that I always wanted humanity to operate. And here at Moab, Moses he narrates the book of Deuteronomy. And, and this, is, uh, this is a point of decision. Choose life. Don't choose death. Choose life and live into this beautiful story that I have not only for you, but for all of humanity. Yeah. Wow. Well, there, there, there it is. I mean, what, what a beautiful description of what that is and of what the, the, the purpose in this way is to, for humanity to live, to flourish. Um, this, this choice before them, choose life or choose death, obey these statutes and commandments I've given you for your life. Um, you know, you, you spend a lot of time here having a PhD in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm just curious, on a personal level, why you were drawn to, to choose Deuteronomy as your focus of your studies. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Ben. That's a nice question. I, I was um, I was in Australia when, in fact, uh, I settled uh, on choosing Deuteronomy for my PhD studies, um, and uh, I um, I we, we were pastoring in a very poor area. It was, in fact. Um, one of the poorest suburbs in the very large Sydney area, and it was a delight. We we um, loved our community there, and we lived um, among a lot of beauty and a lot of community and a lot of brokenness as well. And so, I knew that um, I I wanted to, to to do my PhD on something that would get me up in the morning um, to live into the to the kingdom of God. I knew I wanted to do my PhD on on the kind of theme that would get me up out of bed with a spring in my step, to go out of my front door and to, to love my neighbours and to lead my church in these kinds of directions. Um, and so, you know, Deuteron the book of Deuteronomy is, um, as I've already said, it, what it's, you see, what happened in the Exodus is that, that God literally delivered, emancipated, freed a nation that was enslaved. And right. uh, he, Slavery was hideous, and you, and you, you remember the book of Exodus, how that the Hebrew foremen were killed when brick quotas weren't met, and there was even genocide to keep this uh, this uh, force labor force subjugated. And so, when the, when the, the law is given, and and Deuteronomy in many ways is, is the pinnacle, is the high point of Israel's law that is shaping the community in opposite directions to Egypt. Mm -hmm. Shaping the community to be to be to live together as family, Yahweh is gathering this nation of ex-slaves and saying, "Here is a gift of land, and here is a place that you can flourish." But but you are never to go back to Egypt. 
I mean, ethic, yeah. ethically, in the shape of your life, you never, there were to be no pharaohs among you. And yeah. so, so an example of how this works out, I mean, I, I know your question was personal. I'm going to get to the personal element in a second. But, good. but the, the way this, you know, just as an example of how this fleshes out is in the command, well, if I just skip to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. And, you, you know, I mean, we think, I used to, when I first heard of the Ten Commandments, you know, and for most of my adult life probably, I thought of this as, in very individualistic terms, and I, I thought of, a, I suppose, a, a poor person breaking into a rich person's house. I right. think the image yes. came from my head was like Hamburglar from McDonald's. Um, we, in Australia, Hamburglar has a black and white striped shirt. Is that, I'm sure it's the same in the U.S., I'm sure I we're copying so, you. Yes. And, I, and I knew, uh, imagine a little thief creeping around the house, you know, stealing a video video recorder. And, um, right, which, right. And, um, but, but, but of course we know from the rest of the Old Testament that the opposite is true. The command, thou shalt not steal. I mean, remember Egypt. And, and the command, Pharaoh accumulated wealth at the expense, the terrible, horrific expense of others, including the yeah. Israelites. Yeah. And this command, thou shalt not steal, is saying there should be no pharaohs in Israel. In other words, that that uh, people with means and people with power are not to accumulate, to steal, if you like, at the expense of others. In, in other words, way of saying it is that, that, that God has given generously the land and its abundance, and there is more than enough to share. And everybody is to be able to enjoy some of this gift. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not accumulate the expense of other people. That, to say it positively, everyone is to partake in God's good gift of land and its abundance. And so, you know, for me, um, in in this very very poor um, suburb in Western Sydney that that I still love so much, and where there is so much life, uh, we this was the bottom rung of the economic ladder, and I fell I fell in love uh, with Deuteronomy at, the, at that time. Uh, and, and, and in fact, I'll just tell you, um, in for my PhD, I actually studied um, the refugee in Deuteronomy. Uh, the Hebrew word uh, is, is ger, and it's translated stranger or alien or sojourner. And, and Deuteronomy has a, a real focus on displacement, on displaced people. And it's this beautiful invitation for God's community to offer a, the, this radical welcome of family for people who are looking for a home which is so relevant right now for churches in Phoenix as World, Re- World Relief is, is um, opening up this settlement agency and there's such terrific opportunities, once again, sponsoring refugees. Deuteronomy invites God's people to be kindred, to be family yeah. with people who are displaced and, and, and seeking a home. And this was very, very uh, attractive to me and, and very relevant for me. And that's why I chose Deuteronomy as my PhD topic. Mm, wow. It's, it's beautiful, and I, I love how you, you really woven that together with what your experience was and what you saw as a need, and then um, looking into God's Word to say, what is this What is this story here? What does this say about humanity and where we are at? And that is so relevant in so many ways. Um, I think both with both with specific communities that are in poverty and that are that are downtrodden or, or oppressed in any way, uh, war torn. I think of the the refugees from Syria. Or the folks in our own in our own cities, and the the whole idea of radical welcome is just an idea that's such a gospel centered idea for the church in general. Uh, you know, rich, rich or poor, all around. It's just that we are to be people who are 
to, to have a radical welcome of all. And uh, in, in some ways, um, yeah, there's, the, there's one sense of it as those in poverty um, in an earthly sense, and then there's a, another sense of those in spiritual poverty too. And uh, I think that's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see that um, and see us uh, laying our lives down. Um, so with that, thanks for sharing that at personal, let's just, you, you, you really hit on it already, but I'd like to crystallize this a little bit more, the big themes of Deuteronomy. So people are reading through this right now, Mark, they're, they're in the thick of it. And, uh, I'd love just to hear again, what would you say are the few handful of big themes that we see in Deuteronomy? Uh, maybe there's just one big theme that people should be looking for. And from there, we'll jump into some specific parts. Yeah, sure. Thanks for, the, for that open question. Um, Look, I, I think the theme that um, we can miss sometimes, because we do come to to the Bible sometimes with our presuppositions about what it's all about, I think that what's really central in Deuteronomy is the idea of community and God shaping his people as this contrastive community, as this, as a different community, as a beautiful community. You see it, um, this theme of community um, very clearly, for example, in the feasting text in Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verses 1 to 17. And, you know, it's funny, Ben, um, as you guys read through Deuteronomy, this is a chapter that you can easily skip over as dead boring. So if you have skipped over Deuteronomy 16 when you're hearing this podcast, make sure you go back. And it is so rich. And so what, what is happening there is it's a, fe- it's a what we call um, it's a festival calendar. See, we're not a feasting culture in the West. We're not feasting cultures. But in ancient times, and in many parts of the world, they're feasting cultures. And feasts happen for all sorts of reasons. But they happen seasonally. Um, you know, one way they happen is seasonally according to the harvest. Um, and so we have the Feast of, of Weeks, which is after the, the spring harvest, after the grain, the barley, and the wheat is harvested. We have the Festival of Booths after the the fall gathering of the fruits of the of the olives and and the grapes we make press the olives for olive oil and we press the grapes to make wine and we store this energy this good food this nutrition in jars so that we can uh, eat it throughout the year and uh, this follows this the joy of, of the harvest the the the, um, the the thrill of the harvest and we yeah. we, we, we feast together and in these feasts, um, you'll read there uh, the, that we're invited to um, rejoice before the Lord, often is what the English translations say in verse 11 and verse 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 16. But really, that should be translated feast. And everyone's there, Ben. Um, it's a household, your son, your daughter, uh, but, but, but it's, it's your dependents and uh, the vulnerable. So your female slave, your male female servant, your male servant. Um, the refugee, the displaced person, the orphan, the fatherless, the widow, the, everyone's there. It's a party. And so what happens is we leave the family farm and we journey to, to Jerusalem. Uh, we, go before, we meet before the Lord and there we feast. We, we, we feast. You know, the closest I came uh, in my life to experiencing this fe- festivity of, of everyone gathered. It, this sounds funny. I used to work as a, as a jazz musician uh, in Sydney, where I come from. And I'm a jazz pianist, and um, sometimes I had the privilege of being the only white musician in a Latino band. I have a very good kind of Latino, jazz Latino bands, and I get invited to play at these, these huge festivals. of 5,000 people. Um, and, and again, I, was, I felt like sometimes I was the only Caucasian person there. And, I, and so the band 
would, would, would kick in. And, and the whole place would move. And people of every generation, thousands of people would be moving and everyone could dance so beautifully, you know, so beautifully. And the, the band would kick in and everyone knows the song, everyone knows the dance. Not just, not just uh, uh, parents, but children and even teenagers are dancing with their grandparents. And this festivity, this beautiful uh, food from home, cooked from home, brought, you know, cooked in the style of home. And this experience of kinship, of, of family, of, of yeah. gathering, and, and I'm sure there was dancing at the Israelite feasts. Because you can see it in some of the Psalms then, you know, the right. shortest... The shortest psalm in the Bible is Psalm 121. Um, it's, it's, it's very, very short, and so it must be repeated again and again and again. All it says is, uh, praise the Lord, you people. Praise the Lord, you nations, for his steadfast love is great and his faithfulness forever. And that's it. That's all you get. So it must be repeated and repeated and repeated, and there must be dancing and music and joy. And so this, these, uh, these feasts are a picture of of joy, of community, of family. And what's critical here then, what's critical is that it's not just uh, the middle class, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, we, you know, anthropologists tell us we become family when we feast. Right. When we feast together, kinship cultures become kindred. And here is the fatherless and the widow and the refugee uh, being, uh, being knitted in, being incorporated together with the Israelite household as family. What an incredible picture of God's family, of the community of God. What an incredible picture of the church, both in Old Testament times and now. Now, you know what? You, I, I'm sure you've heard of, uh, of Jesus' um, fellowship meals in the Gospels. And in Jesus' fellowship meals, you know, New Testament scholars have sometimes said that Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. That Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. And you know, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus does more eating than teaching, sort of, than preaching, I suppose, anyway. You got some of those teachers at the meals. But, and, he, and not only did he have this reputation for eating and being a drunkard and a glutton, mm-hmm. but, but he had a reputation, and this was the problem, that he ate with all the wrong, in inverted commas, right. the wrong people. Yeah. And you know, we think that Jesus, you know, as um, we sometimes think that Jesus invented that way of living. We sometimes think that Jesus invented that model for, for the church, if you like. But of course, he, Jesus was just doing what Israel was always supposed to do. Jesus was, um, was, was becoming kin with people around the table in the way that Israel was always supposed to do, all the way back to Deuteronomy 16, 1 to 17. But what a picture of the church, Ben. Now, if this is our picture of the church... Could anyone ever speak for a moment about making higher walls on the Mexico border? If our picture of the church is, is God's people becoming family around table with all the most vulnerable people. You know, you know what that's doing, Ben? That's doing two things. Number one, that's calling people to counter cost. It's calling people to hang out with people we may not be the most comfortable with. People who may not be like people with whom we might have to find new topics of conversation, and the second thing it is doing, it's calling us, it's inviting us into joy, yeah. to real joy. You know that Jesus was the most fully human person that's ever lived, and we've got to assume that with that, given the fall came suffering, and came deep 
deep joy. You know, we settle for cheap thrills and we settle for fear tactics sometimes. Yeah. And fear rhetoric we just fall for. But God invites us into these lives of joy. Hey, Ben, you know what we need this election? You, you know what we need after this election? Well, I, I think this election, we, we all know this election's done for. We have to already, I think, be thinking beyond this election. And what we need is to Christians, I think, to take, evangelicals take a fast from politics and to, and to call one another under Scripture in Christ to deep spiritual and communal renewal. You know, we need to fast from politics and even talk of politics for a full presidential term, if not two. And we, and we need to, seriously, we, we're responsible for this predicament. It's not the right. two candidates who are responsible for this predicament. Right. The church is way out of shape. We can see that already from Deuteronomy 16, 1 to 17, and from Jesus' fellowship meals. We are out of shape then. And so we need to repent deeply, and we need to renew under Scripture by the Spirit. And I think what we need to do is we, you know, the parable of the mustard seed, has never been as important as it is this election. The parable of a mustard seed is a parable about small communities of Christ followers who are dying to self and calling one another to the deep joy of counting a cost for others and living authentically, just like Deuteronomy is, is doing in ancient times, as a contrastive community that is showing the rest of humanity what being human is all about. We need to withdraw from politics because we've got it all wrong. There's no way after this election any of these... We, we, can, ha, we can put our trust in the Republican Party reforming or the Democratic Party reforming. These Both parties right now are products of our own sinfulness. Mm-hmm. And, and evangelicals are deeply complicit in this. We must withdraw and we must come home to Jesus and we must form ourselves as small contrastive communities that are reflecting deeply and authentically the love of God in Christ. And a great text for starting once we've read the parable of the mustard seed a hundred times. And we have faith that in doing this, God can change the world. Yeah, that's beautiful. Wow. But the text to start with, a programmatic text for these communities can be Deuteronomy 16, 1 to 7. Deuteronomy 16. 16. 1 to 17. 1 to 17, the feasting text. Okay, 17, yeah. Um, it's uh, let, let, let's let's run with that. Uh, and by the way, thank you. It, it, it got real in here real quick. Uh, with the <laughs> he, he jumped into the election. I love it, Mark. You just to be able to comment on that and and uh, I think really really call us out in the way that needs to be done as as God's people, as the church, to say the ugliness of this is um, is is very much our fault as the church too. It's not it's not out there, but we are very complicit in it. And at the same time. Um, seeing the book of Deuteronomy giving us this this guidance, this roadmap, this this uh, shape of life of a, a be- people as a beautiful community. There's something about the table, isn't there? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, you're, you're a musician, so I'm sure you've been to concerts and music. Same thing happens there. Same thing happens with um, people celebrating um, with like a huge win, especially now, you know, after our, our World Series here in the U.S. and, and with baseball going on. Um, just like when when people when their team or when this, this some band or concert or show they're at or just really simply at the table together just rejoicing just just celebrating the the, the categories and the labels wear off 
they, they melt away. There's something about the joy of beholding something beautiful and of being together that people stop thinking about how you're different than me, what party are you from, political party, or how much money do you make, or what kind of car do you drive, or where do you live, or what, what, um, what's your ethnic background. It's really it's amazing for, to me to watch those crowds you know, dancing and celebrating the street. Uh, it happens all over the world, mostly with, with football, with soccer, you know, in global places to watch their team win, but, but, and here in the U.S. too, whether it's football or hockey or baseball, I mean, those things, those, those crowds that come out and they just are so full of joy. Hopefully not starting things on fire, but, uh, you know, really just rejoicing. But the same thing even happens really simply at the table. Uh, 5, 10, 15 people just enjoying a meal together. Um, there's something about the labels that really wear off when, when we're in that kind of communal place, isn't there? I, I think so. No, this is beautiful. All these things you say, um, that's right. I mean, anthropologists call it liminality, that mm. almost like um, social roles, social status is sort of suspended and this is very good. I think that... Um, uh, I would like to, uh, perhaps uh, it's worth talking about, you know, just for a second, hospitality uh, in Western countries at this point. And because I think the mistake is, um, riffing off what you're saying, Ben, that's so good, is we, we hang out with people who are like us. We yeah. hang out with people who are the same. But, you know, usually the same socioeconomic background, often the same ethnicity. And and this is hospitality. Um, you know, there was a recent blog, I think, on the... On the um, uh, the Gospel Coalition website that define hospitality in this way of, of hanging out with, with people who aren't Christians uh, and having them at our table. That, this, this is fine, but it's not biblical hospitality. Right. Biblical hospitality is, is doing family in our diversity. Mm. And we see this in Jesus' fellowship meals. This man eats with sinners and he befriends sinners and eats with them, Luke 15, verse 2. This was an outrage in the first century. And, 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 you know, we look at the, the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and we think, oh, you shouldn't be outraged. You know, this is Jesus. Of course he should be eating with tax collectors and sinners. But, but, but we don't do it, Ben. You know, yeah. we don't yeah. do it. And, and, but, but this is the biblical story because it's about God, God the Father in Christ reforming humanity as kinship with him, our divine kinsman, and therefore as kinship, as kin with one another. The, one of, the, one of the, the, the central threads, the central trajectories that just zooming through the biblical story, yeah. in, the light of the, in the light of the fall, in the, that God redeeming humanity as kindred, first of all with himself as the divine kinsman, our heavenly father. And, and because of that, it's almost like a triangle with God at the top and with humanity on, on either uh, sides of, of this uh, equilateral triangle. As kinship is as kins people with one another, but but the, it's in our diversity, and, and it's especially this side of the fall for the sake of the vulnerable. And this is for Israel. Oh, I spoke about a point of decision that Deuteronomy brings Israel to, and God says in Deuteronomy thirty, choose life. And for the church today, as with ancient Israel, very literally in Deuteronomy. Choosing to live in our diversity, choosing to embrace the orphan, the father, the and the refugee is this choosing life. This is yeah. choosing life. This yeah. is, as we, we can't embrace the divine kins, kinsman, our divine God, our divine kinsperson, without embracing the other. Because it's the same movement in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the same movement. 
Right, right. And so, as I'm speaking about this, this deep renewal that the church needs in light of this election, it, we have got to find God at the margins. And so long as we are charging to the centre, charging to the places of power and wealth and influence, we're leaving God, Ben, according to the yeah. book of Deuteronomy. And, and I think that in, in, in the movement of evangelicalism, in the two-party politics, in the, in the utter complicity with insufficiently restrained capitalism, if I can say it, that a capitalism that leaves the vulnerable behind and prioritises the rights of the corporations, this, this is it's a movement back to Egypt in biblical terms. It's a movement that's putting Pharaoh in charge and, and it's a movement away from the margins and the people that Christ ate with Ben. So somehow as we renew ourselves in light of Scripture... We have to find our way back to humility, to, re, to, to, uh, uh, to relinquish power, to downward mobilization, and finding our brotherhood with the most vulnerable. Until we do, we are not going to find the joy that awaits us in Christ. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing that you bring up too, you know, to think about Egypt as we are immersed in this story and we're reading through this Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and now Deuteronomy really putting a, a cap on all of this and, and Moses preaching to us, God preaching to us through Moses, his servant. Um, we, we see that there, there's a pattern. There's a pattern of the pharaohs. There's a pattern of Egypt and God's people. That is when, when any time the vulnerable are stepped on and oppressed and put out and and are, are made into subjects or slaves, that is a pattern of, of Egyptian rule and of sin. And I think that pattern can be seen in a lot of, uh, you know, very first world countries, if you will, wealthy countries. Um, I will say, as, a, as an American, we see that here, that there are many places where, where the poor are forgotten, where the vulnerable are stepped on, where they're exploited and pushed to the edges and forgotten and pushed outside. And that's a, that is a pattern of Egypt that should be sobering to us as a church, right? It, it's, it's, instead of it being Israel, God's people in, in that story of the Exodus, it's, it's really God's people being complicit many times in that, in that kind of oppression with the pharaohs themselves. I think that is a real sobering reality for us. Oh, look, I think you're right. I mean, I mean these, the, the two candidates, are, are, they're our own creations, you know. I mean, I, mean I, I agree with that. We've gone back to Egypt. And so, I mean, you, and so this is, we've gone back to Egypt. And so we're, we've made our bed and now we, we need, you know, we're lying in it, uh, even though we don't want to. Uh, this is right. You know, and another lens for these good things that you're saying, I think, and you asked me uh, a few minutes ago, one of the big themes of the book. Right. And, and the biggest theme of the book is God. <laughs> you yeah. Know, and here's the one, here's the one who speaks, here's the one who redeemed Israel. So can I just narrate God for a second? in this book, um, because as you read through Deuteronomy, um, Redemption Tempe, uh, look out for God and see who, and just, you know, behold your God. And, and just try and, as you read through Deuteronomy, friends, try and just suspend your theological categories for a moment, this grid that you, uh, that you come to Scripture with every time, and, 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 and just let God in Deuteronomy show himself to you. And the first thing you, you will see is that God is the giver uh, of the land and its abundance. That, yeah. that, that God has given generously. You know, he's given generously. And, uh, you know, a, a First Nations chief uh, said, um, 
he said, human beings are like my pigs. Uh, they eat the apples, but they never look up to see where the apples have fallen from. And, you know, God in Deuteronomy is the giver, you know. And this is an invitation to look up, if you like, or to look to God, who is a supplier of these things. And it's an invitation to a life of thanksgiving, a life that's directed in thanksgiving to God, for the abundance that he gives us. And this pushes away fear, and it frees us up to live joyfully in community. It it, it frees us up to count a cost. It, and uh, and so, so just, this is the first thing that we have about God in Deuteronomy. This is the first thing. Do you want me to give you a couple more? Uh, let's see. I want to jump into this. It's related to what you just said, and, and uh, it's a very practical question. So I'd love to just equip our people with this um, because I think it relates directly to what you're saying in the big themes. Um, and then we can get back to that because I, lo- I would love to hear more. Uh, what do you think most people uh, miss or mistake when they're reading Deuteronomy. It's a lot of lot of content in there. And, and can you give us a few tips like, don't get in the weeds on this or this? Oh, yeah, what a great question. Uh, I think just uh, hearkening back to what I said a moment ago, do try and suspend your theological categories. And, uh, the, you know, we have to let each new biblical book shape us. And the whole canon, all the scripture shapes, shapes us and shapes our view of God. But sometimes an already set grid can become immovable as we read a book. And so we miss the book altogether. Um, and and we, we, we are looking for the relevant parts and we don't find relevant parts. And that's because our grid's wrong sometimes or usually, yeah. you know, often. All of our grids are slightly wrong. Mm-hmm. So I think it, be ready to encounter God afresh. One, and I think that, um, look, one, I think that one troubling part for many readers in Deuteronomy is judgment. And the judgment specifically on the Canaanites. And so um, this is actually very, it's a very rich thing when we understand it in Deuteronomy's own terms. But at first glance, it can be troubling. Do you want me to speak speak for a couple of minutes on this? Yes, please do. Yeah, well, um, so, so, you know, we we have uh, this call um, to, the Hebrew word is harem. It's translated in various ways, um, to utterly forsake. Um, or to destroy is another way it's sometimes said, it translated. Um, harem can be translated both ways, and it's applied to the Canaanites, the, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, and so on. Um, so this is a very, this, this is actually, um, understandably, it's troubling, and it has been misunderstood and misapplied. It's actually very thick and pregnant with with uh, theology and ethical possibilities. Um, so, s- some helpful things. First of all, to understand that the judgment upon the Canaanites in the book of Deuteronomy is not an arbitrary judgment because they're Canaanites, say, along ethnic lines. But it, it's a divine response to, the, to their injustice and wickedness of these nations. Yeah. Uh, uh, Deuteronomy 12.31, for example. Deuteronomy 12.31. So, this is important to understand. It's not arbitrary. It's a judgment upon wickedness. But, but what makes that point really sing is to understand that God's judgment also fell on Israel for the same reasons. Uh, uh, that Israel herself in the horizon of Deuteronomy is going to undergo judgment for her failure, uh, for her going back to Egypt and being everything that Pharaoh was, and w- w- which, uh, which should make us shudder 
when we think of what's going on in politics at the moment, the way that we are suckers for the kind of rhetoric that that is really um, calling us to selfishness and consider what's best for me instead of considering that I should count a cost for others. We want politicians who call us to count a cost for others. This is what Israel did not do, but it's also perhaps what US evangelicals are not doing when it comes to politics. Um, so, uh, but we're Canadian too, and Australian to be sure. So this judgment upon the Canaanites, it, it's, it's for their wickedness, but secondly, this same judgment also falls upon Israel herself. And that's very important because by making the point that it's not along ethnic lines. Here is the next very, very important point. We, when, we, when Israel's called to utterly destroy the Canaanites, which happens in a, a couple of times, yeah. there's two very, very helpful things. Uh, I know some people are sitting on the edge of their seat right now, and so you should be. Um, first of all, you have to understand that Israel was not powerful. Israel, in fact, was a very small nation, in, in, surrounded by more powerful nations, and didn't have the capacity to, to intervene militarily much at all. It, it wasn't like God said to the powerful Egyptian empire or Assyrian empire, go and kill so-and-so, because right. Assyria and Egyptia surely could have done or Egypt could have done that. But Israel couldn't do it. It was, all, it was on the lips of those who didn't have weapons. It really was on the lips of a nation that was henpecked by the countries around them, and so we need. This is very, very important. And and coming in the in the book of Deuteronomy, which is a Deuteronomy where God's people are called to live in solidarity with the marginalized. Well, this is actually a word that's given to a marginalized nation, and so this needs to affect our understanding of of this call to judgment upon the nations. The next thing we need to understand, it's an ancient text, right? So there's lots of pieces that we need to understand. The distance is very, very great. And this is perhaps the most important level. Old Testament scholars know, there's no doubt about this, that the kind of military language of destroying uh, a nation was very, very common in ancient literature. Right. Not just in, in, in Israelite literature, but even Moabite literature, uh, their closest neighbor, uh, we have, um, you see, we have Moabite literature where King Mesha of Moab says, I utterly destroyed Israel. Uh, this is called the Moabite stone, this effect. I utterly destroyed Israel, he says. And I put every, uh, uh, he, he put uh, every woman and, and man to death. He put every Israelite to death. But of course we know that he didn't, right? So right. what's going on there? Well, in ancient times, if you write a military text and you speak about a battle, whether it's a battle that you won or a battle that you want to win, the way you say it is, I put every man, woman and child, and perhaps animal, to death. That's how you say it. It's ancient code for having a victory. Uh, King Mesha says, I killed, I, I decimated Israel, put everyone to death. He didn't. He just, he just won a victory. It was probably a very minor local victory, um, just in a local area around the, uh, on the other side of the Jordan, on the side of Moab. But, but he, he puts it in ancient terms. I put everyone to death. And, and so this is what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy. It's code for saying we're a victory. But we need to go deeper than that. Um, given all that I've said here, Ben, what is, what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy is this. It's, 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 it's not a call to battle, in my opinion. It's, in, in the opinion of many Old Testament scholars, 
the invitation to 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 destroy or to forsake the nations is 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 saying you must utterly utterly resist the false gods that these nations follow and you must be utterly committed to me it's the strongest possible way to say in a metaphorical way your allegiance must be mine any other option is death to you you must choose me and in, you see, in Deuteronomy, there's this tension between welcoming the outsider, this rich, rich welcome for the outsider, for the alien, the sojourner, the stranger, and, and at the same time, utterly forsaking any other God. Yeah. We must be faithful to Yahweh. And ironically, sometimes, very often in Deuteronomy, faithfulness to Yahweh means welcoming the stranger. And so this is part of the tension of Deuteronomy. On the one hand, uh, total faithfulness to Yahweh. On the other hand, because of that total faithfulness to Yahweh, there's generous welcome for the vulnerable. These things are intention, and these are, uh, in many ways, the main themes, two uh, parallel paths of Deuteronomy that relate very, very closely together. Is that helpful? I think that's very helpful, and and it was was great to, we heard some of that too from Josh Butler in the the first Wednesday on the Bible and and violence and peace, and he he gave some similar um, some similar points from from different angles too, and so it is it's good because it is a huge piece. It, it's hard for us to read about um, what seems very harsh commands or almost genocidal type of commands in the, in the Old Testament, and without having a context of what really is happening there. And I think that's that's a major barrier for a lot of people. And so you know that that question about what do many people miss or mistake when yeah. reading Deuteronomy and probably really a lot of the Old Testament yeah. is is that there's this sort of like a jarring sense of it's extremely violent, but then it's also saying but be at peace with each other. When in reality, there these things aren't incoherent, but they are cohesive. They are together. Uh, it seems too if you can maybe comment on this that you know. We, there's a retelling of the, of the of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words in Deuteronomy 5. Moses gives it to them again. And, and the first verse in that, really, I know there's some different opinions about this, but Deuteronomy 5, 7 says, you shall have no other gods before me. Right. It's this huge, powerful, this kind of primary imperative of God's people. Do not worship other gods. Do not go after other gods, other idols. There's so many temptations in this world all around you and even within you. Do not do that. And then he gives these, these you know, specific ones about not making a carved image or not stealing or, or honoring your father and mother or not murdering. And then in the next chapter, Deuteronomy 6, we have what is often called the greatest commandment. The, the Shema, you know, the, the Hebrew word for hear or listen, the Shema Israel, right? Hear, O Israel. And he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So can you just speak to that? This, these aren't just disparate ideas being thrown out and just kind of compiled together. There is a cohesiveness to Deuteronomy as a story in in forsaking the idolatry of other places and, and really their violence and their oppression of peoples like Egypt or like other places around them, of their hurting each other and, and not being acting as a family, and then not just protecting themselves, but really to be a welcoming community, to welcome in the sojourner and the father to the fatherless, even the foreigner, those who aren't ethnically Israelites still are welcomed in. And then these commandments about no, don't do these things, don't murder, don't steal, what have you, don't cover. And, and then from there, moving into you shall love the Lord your God. I just, would you speak a little bit to how those, you know, that, that kind of, the, the no's, thou shall not, 
relate to the greatest commandment of you shall love the Lord your God? Yeah, yeah, great question. Uh, it's such a good question. Um, can I um, jump back into our previous discussion? And yeah. because it's relevant to this very good question you've, you've uh, brought up. Um, I just, I just agree with what you say at the difficulty that people find in reading the Old Testament. And I know that it can fuel our doubts about the truth about Jesus. It can be deeply troubling at a spirit, at, at, at just so deeply in our heart. We think, you know, I, I, can't, I can't trust this Bible. You know, I, I, I can't follow a God that, that speaks these words. And, and I'm sure that there are, there are plenty of people, I know that there are people in, lots of people in my community. And Ben, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'll fess up. I'm someone who has doubts sometimes. And I have to work through my doubts in community. So I, I, I just want to echo what you say there, man. Um, and, and I just want to encourage our sisters and brothers in that regard. Just know that, that when we have these deep doubts, that the best thing is to bring it into discussion in community. You know, the worst thing is to sit on them quietly. Because when we sit on them quietly, uh, it, it can be so difficult to work through. And, and they get bigger and bigger and we get more and more troubled, and then we burst. Uh, bring them into community, bring them in dialogue, you know, with your home group, and with, with your pastors, and with yeah. your family. Man, that's important. And just know that when we come to Scripture, when especially the Old Testament, you know, it's an ancient text. And the incredible thing about the Old Testament, you know, on one hand we think, boy, this is impossible to understand, or I need someone to explain it to me to understand. But the cool thing about that is, here's the cool thing, that God, the reason why it's so hard to understand is that God actually went to that culture at a particular time, thousands of years ago, using the metaphors and ways of writing that that culture used. You see, he incarnated, in, in a sense, in a literary way, he incarnated himself to the ancient Israelites. And so, you know, on one hand, it's confusing for us, and we go, rats. But the, the blessing is that we have a God who comes close and he comes to a particular culture and to a particular time and brings his word specifically to them. And he invites us to do that hard work of discerning, working our way through that cultural divide and discerning his word for us in Christ and his spirit helps us. So that's yeah. the blessing. Now you just brought up this great question between these beautiful laws you know, perhaps the clearest, most beautiful, uh, Deuteronomy 15.4, there shall be no poor among you. Don't get better than that. But then you get to these, these negatively expressed laws, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet. And then you get to the love, love the Lord your God, how they all relate. Well, we've spoken about the life-giving nature of, of, of Deuteronomy's law. And we've also spoken about the Ten Commandments in terms of the Sixth Command. Um, so... Seventh command, excuse me, thou shalt not steal. And we saw how this, while it's expressed in the negative, is actually uh, a, an invitation. Uh, it's an invitation to live as a community that is nothing like Egypt. God is shaping through this command a community in contradistinction to Egypt, a place specifically where there should be no pharaohs who steal. There should be no pharaohs who accumulate excessively at the expense of his or her sisters and brothers. This is an invitation. The Ten Commandments are for a community. They're shaping a community. And they're an invitation 
uh, not just um, in, in, they're an invitation to live together as a as an authentic, genuine family, and and they're an invitation to do this at a heart level. Thou shalt not covet is addressing the heart, and the, you, you see. Um, I don't have time to go through all the Ten Commandments now, but what I said about thou shalt not steal, it's consistent for them all. You know, let me just say this. Let's just say that Pharaoh was a murderer of all murderers, and thou shalt not murder is in this similar shape to thou shalt not steal. You know, you know in most cultures then, including Western culture, human life is valued less than economic productivity. Right. You know, 200 years ago in England, if, if, if you stole a sheep, you'd be killed. What was that? That was prioritizing economic productivity over human life. But you know, the way that Canada and Australia and the US prioritize in our trade deals other developed Western nations from whom we can benefit over and above the very poor trade deals we do with developing world countries, that is prioritizing economic productivity over human life, very literally. Now, how does this all work with the command? So that's the Ten Commandments, Ben. We've moved from the law to the Ten Commandments. So we're all moving in the same direction. God is shaping in love this contrastive community. Come into my joy, he's saying. And Jesus came into that joy in a way that Israel never did. And Jesus invites us by the Spirit to come into this joy. But what do we do with, um, with uh, this, uh, the, the, the command in the next chapter to love the Lord your God with this whole mind heart, which... which Christ himself quotes. So here's what we do with it. This, this is the thing then. That you can't do this. You can't invent this and you can't do it unless God's at the center. But, you know, God reveals himself. We, I was speaking about the character of God in Deuteronomy 20 minutes ago. God reveals himself in Deuteronomy the way we meet him as the great emancipator of slaves. And you know, you can't live into, into a kingdom shape. You can't be these renewed missional communities that the U.S. needs in light of this election. You know, you can't, you can't buy a politics that calls us to counter cost without the Spirit of God in Christ dwelling in us. We need God, man. And, yeah. and, and it's God's love that infuses us. We need God. Christ is the clue to his creation. Not ourselves, not community, nothing but Christ, man. You know, let me illustrate that. I had a friend, right, who, who left Christ. Uh, he walked away from, from Christ and he walked away from the church. Very intelligent man, very passionate man, uh, a great fun guy to talk to. I'll call him David. And <coughs> so David explained to me, on this, we had this long walk through the forest, he explained to me when he left the church, didn't believe in God anymore, but he loved what the church did then because he was from a great church in Hamilton, Canada that really was trying to dig deep into this kind of kingdom family thing and living in diversity. And he, he said, you know, he said, I don't believe in God anymore, my friend David said. He said, but, 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 but you know, he said, um, I really, the church is amazing the way it creates community. You can't find that anywhere. He said to me, so what I've been doing is, I've been, I started to talk to my friends at work about what the church is, what the church does, and the kind of shape that this church in Hamilton had, right? And he said, so I talked to my workmates, let's try and do this. You know, I'd like to find some people who can gather together and be this wonderful community, you know, that lives together with all this richness and thickness and so on. And so that's what my friend David did. 
And he said to me, anyway, he said he was so excited. He said, a year later, I, I, I met up with this workmate. And do you know what, Mark? He said, my workmate had started to do this. He'd come, he brought together these people and they had come together and made a community and it was working. And, and he said, isn't that great? And I thought to myself, and then he said to me, a bit disappointed, he said, but they didn't invite me. Yeah. And you know, Ben, my friend David, he's a bit of an oddball. And if Westerners, typical Westerners with the way that we live, with our self, relatively selfish lives, you know, we, we, David's not, kind of, not the kind of person that you would invite into a community as a Westerner, as a typical yeah. Westerner. And yeah. you know, but the church does. Yeah. And why is yeah. that, you know? The church does it because we follow a crucified Messiah yeah. who ate with tax collectors and sinners. The world can't do it. And I just couldn't believe that David at that point couldn't see that it's Jesus that makes the difference. Jesus is the clue to creation. And it's Jesus in his death in defeating sin and his resurrection as he dies as the first fruits of this world, the first fruits of this world renewed. Yeah. And in his yeah. church, he's birthing a resurrection people that's living as a sign to the good things he's doing in the world, as a foretaste of this world renewed, as an instrument of the kingdom of God. This people, infused by the Spirit and empowered by the resurrection of Christ, inspired by his life. Christ is the clue to creation. And that's why the command, love the Lord your God, goes hand in hand with the ethics of Jerusalem. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is really encouraging just to hear it uh, directly from you now. And I hope to all our people listening that um, this, this beautiful, cohesive story of God building this beautiful community together. Um, I want to finish us up here with a few practical things, um, really, and by that I mean that in literally like practices that you have pulled from Deuteronomy. You're a pastor of a church in Vancouver as well, and I would just love to share some, some things that you have seen or practiced or seen your people do or, or heard of other people doing, um, really coming out of this whole discussion about being this, this community that God is building, that is a witness to His, to beholding His beauty and His grace and, and His power, and to be a distinct people um, in this world, uh, kind of to, to lead us into that, I want to just read this from, from Deuteronomy 4. It's what Moses is saying to the people before he, he really does present the law again and is commanding obedience. He says, um, this is Deuteronomy 4, 6, um, uh, or, or starting at 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you were entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this is a great nation, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And, and just like that, that phrase caught me, Mark, in the sight of the peoples, like the, our, our, our commands to obey God is, is to make us a distinct people, to shape us as a community that is distinct to the world around us, and the nations will see it in the sight of those nations. People see what's going on, and uh, hopefully in, intrigued, sometimes angered, but but often, but in, in all ways, welcomed. And and so, would you speak to? I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a couple of words actually um, that. Uh, 
I think might hit on some of the pulse of a lot of mainstream culture right now, a lot of what's feeling. And I'd love just to have a quick answer, you know, a, a one sentence answer to these, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into some practices from that. Um, fear. Feels like a lot of people are afraid, uh, just afraid of what might happen, afraid of, of potential attacks or of terrorism or of the economy plummeting or, or so many things. Those are public fears. And then there's a lot of private fear, I think, too. Will my family fall apart? Will, I, will my marriage make it through this rough spot? Will my, will my kids be okay? Will they fall into drugs or will they, will they you know, thrive somewhere and go to a good school? Whatever it might be, right? All these different worries and fears. Um, yeah, in, in, a, in short, Form, but what do you think Deuteronomy would speak to this as after our long conversation here? Um, I think that it would call us to Thanksgiving then. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, we need to realize that in Canada and the U.S., you know, we, we are so privileged. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, fear in light of the global reality is absurd. Uh, we have to learn to be thankful, but it's not going to happen individually. We have to be learned to be thankful in community. One of the things we do in our own communities is we pray prayers of thanks. Um, yeah. Many services, um, we've uh, written prayers of thanks on post-it notes and stuck them all around the church or stuck them on the wall up in the front of the sanctuary as a mosaic to the gifts that God's given us. We've got to learn yeah. to be thankful. Yeah, I love it. Um, next one here. You've spoken to this already, but um, the election this year has just brought out a lot of ugliness, and, and it reminds me of what Jesus told us. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what we've seen is not something that has caused the problem, but really is just unveiling what's already there. But but uh, Deuteronomy, or sorry, uh, Genesis 4, you mentioned it too, Cain and Abel, the first sons of all creation. First thing that happens, or the greatest thing that happens between them, separation and murder. And so I, I think right there we see that sin separates and brings about death. Um, polarization and separa separation, as those words, it seems like culturally we, we hit so much of that um, in the U.S. is coming into our election season. How, how does Deuteronomy speak to that kind of polarization, separation from people? Yeah, it, it, this is a very, very good point. Um, it's, it, we, it's, this is why we, we need to go to mustard seeds. Um, Deuteronomy is all about community. Uh, yeah. we, we need... We need to go to mustard seeds, and we need to know that the parable of the mustard seed is 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 a parable of God's. It's a parable of God's church, and that doesn't mean it's not. Stop! We, we mustn't just imagine church as it is. We must imagine a renewed community of people gathered around Christ, and and we need to. It's in this context of by the Spirit of Christ becoming family, that we make space for one another and talk to one another and hear one another out. Um, you know what? Um, evangelicals must fast from political activism, and evangelicals must forever swear themselves off partisan politics. We must then not only swear ourselves off to party politics, but partisan politics as Christians in the name of Christ, because because Christ can't be co-opted for a political party. So we need. And we discover this when we get together as family and hear one another out. Yeah, it's amazing to watch in my own heart and life and in other people's lives when when God's grace is abounding, how um, we are we are opening our arms and embracing people. And conversely, to those, uh, where, including myself, when, when I focused on myself and my own selfishness and my own desires and, and 
sin is, is really plaguing me in that. Um, it's amazing to watch um, and sad to watch like how much I, I really want to withdraw and separate and isolate. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And it, so as God's people, we, we, we come together in unity. And, uh, and create this beautiful community that, that Deuteronomy paints. Um, so how about one more? Um, in our age of technology, there is an insane, and I mean that in, in almost a literal way, amount of information. It is incredible how much information is, is literally at our fingertips, um, in our smartphones, at our laptops, all the news and headlines, and, and some of it's uh, reputable and some of it is not, and whatever things you can find out there, and, and some of it's beautiful and like shows the wonder of our crea- of God's creation in this world we live in, and some of it is really sad and superficial or dark or whatever it might be. So here's the word, Mark, um, especially in light of community, truth. How do, how do God's people um, rejoice in and really feast, as it were, um, on the truth of God and the truth of His reality? Oh, that's, beautiful. that's beautiful. I think you're right that we're going to find it together. Uh, there's no doubt about that. We're going to find it by reading Scripture and you together, and we're going to find it especially, uh, we're going to find Christ as. Matthew chapter 5, 25 says we're going to find Christ in the people who are most vulnerable among us. Um, you know, um, I'll just share with you, Ben. Um, you know, we, we, Aaron and I, uh, we, we just finished Canadian Thanksgiving and, and our, the habit of our family is to, um, is, is to share a table with um, the poorest in our church community, and I'm thrilled to, to say that there are people who are on only the street in our church community, and uh, th- th- this is our joy. Th- this is um, so. If you came along to my son's um, fourth birthday party, uh, you know, uh, while you might expect to see the children of middle class families, and you may see them, you would also see um, these th- these these people who are very very vulnerable who. Are our family to us and kin with us. I think um, in our business and in our academic pursuit, in our teaching, in our, you know, also trying to speak to truth to power and all the things that Aaron and I do, um, this is just, um, you know, we we need to slow down and we need to um, find out who we are as people and as as God's children, like little children, um, by really genuinely doing family um, with other human beings, and and, and this is uh, this is like attending to life's brokenness, isn't it? It's like attending to humanity's brokenness and our own brokenness. Um, I think truth is found there, um, and it's very different to an iPhone, I suppose, isn't it? It's very different from a Facebook post. It's yeah. You know, man, um, I'll tell you, man, we had Christmas, um, and uh, a dear friend, uh, Cyril, who's now deceased, was at our Christmas party. He was uh, um, uh, just a a very terrible memory memory loss and um, just social, lack of social capacity, and he's now deceased. And he brought, you know what he did before our Christmas uh, lunch, is he went up to the top of the highest mountain in Vancouver, he put a gondola up there. He got two snowballs that he packed together, um, about the size of like half the size of you know a soccer ball, and he put them in a plastic bag and he brought them down, and he put placed them as centerpieces on our Christmas uh, dinner table. 
you know, we, we probably we probably had Christmas lunch around eleven a.m. or twelve or something, and and what a gift, you know, like we just so and so he was family with us, right? He and he really sadly died, and so what does this do for our kids, right? You know, what does this do for our kids in terms of showing our kids what life is all about and what the kingdom of God's all about? And what does this do for me? And what does this do for Aaron? And what does this do for I don't know for the world, you know? And this is what Jesus did, right? This is how he lived, and. Anyway, I, I don't know. That's an oblique answer to how do you find truth. Yeah, no, I think, but that's helpful because it it does feel like um, a lot of us uh, struggle to know what's what's true, what what is like real out there when there's so much information that comes flooding in. And I think just what you said, like it's not going to be found in a Facebook post or a, a headline on the internet. Um, we need to sit down with our with our family, uh, with our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and anyone really welcome them in and, and see that, that God has spoken and is, is speaking through his spirit. And, and uh, the, the really, I think the beauty of that with humanity, with real people and real relationships that are not easy, not always easy, oftentimes uh, they bring forth fruit over time, but initially, sometimes those those initial things can be difficult, but good, and that's what we're called to. And there, I, I feel like there's a sometimes, um, as you were speaking, I just thought sometimes truth is seen like pillars, like these big stone marble pillars that last forever. Um, but but maybe what we see more in the narrative of the Bible is truth is like the heartbeat. Um, it's not changing, but it's alive, and uh, it's it's giving life. Um, and so I just, uh, yeah, just, um, yes, I, 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 Mark, we're going to, we're going to close it up. Thank you so much for giving us this time and really just for, um, yeah, being able to dive into Deuteronomy and uh, I've been so encouraged and I know our listeners will be too. And, um, really excited now to, to, to keep going in Deuteronomy with some of these lenses about just, um, seeing this as, as Yahweh, as God building his fa- family, renewing humanity, and um, get, shaping us to be a people who, uh, who are people of radical welcome and beautiful community amidst a broken world. Um, uh, if I can recap some of those things that you were saying. So uh, just so thankful, Mark, for you. Um, just know if you, uh, you know, you're ever feeling a little down with those clouds or snow in Vancouver, you're always welcome to get a dose of sunshine here in, in Phoenix, man. We are we're so happy to have you. Uh, Tempe is a great, great antidote to the seasonal affective disorder. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah. I think we're down in April, so we look forward to that. Excellent, excellent. Mark, thank you so much uh, for, for speaking with us. God bless you in what you're doing there, and just thank you for blessing us. Uh, we appreciate it tons. Thanks, heaps, Ben. All right. Have Cheers. a good day.